Hey guys, welcome to our very first podcast series here on the Bell Shoals Women podcast. We are thrilled to begin our first series with a study called Sheep, the worth of women in the storyline of the Bible. Now this study was written by speaker, author, and great friend to our podcast, April Swears. If you'd like to know more about April, you can find more of her content on her podcast called Her God Speaks or by visiting her webpage at hergodspeaks.com. I am so excited about this study because it's journey through the Bible with our eyes wide open to the value of women. We are gonna explore what is truth and maybe some mistruth we've heard in regard to women and learn how we were created in the image of God and that we are essential to his mission in the world. The Bell Shoals Women podcast proudly presents She with April Swears. Well, in the summer, I often take my boys to Adventure Island, which is a water park here locally. And their favorite part of the whole park is the Lazy River. Except they don't understand the concept of the lazy part. You guys must have the same children. Because instead of floating along in a nice comfy inner tube with the current of the water, they like to swim against the current. They think it's fun. Last time I was there, I was wearing my Apple Watch and it kept asking me if I wanted to record a workout. (laughs) Which was hilarious to me because I was literally in a lazy river. And the passages like we are in today require my son's approach. We are going to have to swim upstream against the currents of modern secular feminism with more gusto and perseverance than we have had to do so far in our study. In fact, there are quite a few passages in the New Testament epistles that require this. For instance, uh, what we're going to see today is in the context of marriage, wives are commanded to submit to husbands who hold the primary leadership role. There are also passages in the New Testament epistles that delegate the position of pastor, elder, uh, and, and the functions of that position, such as preaching and teaching in the gathered church assembly, exclusively to qualified men. I think it is important to note For all my life, I kind of thought, well, men can be pastors, women can't. That is not really a true statement. Actually, a very small percentage of men can be pastors. You guys looked at some of the requirements for a man who's going to serve as the leader of the church, as a shepherd, and there are, I mean, teeny tiny percentage of men qualify for that. So we're not the only ones excluded from the pastor role. There are actually a lot of men who are excluded from the pastor role as well. Um, Going back to the New Testament epistle, uh, apparently the women of the church in Corinth were being very disruptive in corporate worship, uh, creating a lot of disorder. And so Paul basically tells them to be quiet in the church. If they wanted to learn something, they needed to go ask their husbands at home. Talk about a cringy passage to read in your morning quiet time. So these are, these are hard passages. They're hard passages 
to come across in light of our cultural moment. And what I want to do today is I want to walk you through one of these challenging passages and help you see that in light of the original context and the theological foundation, there's actually nothing to be afraid of here. The worth of women is not at risk. It's actually affirmed. Now, I've chosen 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 as our passage today, uh, but we're going to be incorporating some other passages as well. I don't like to have us flipping back and forth to a bunch of passages, uh, but we are going to do some flipping today, all right? So just be prepared for that. If that's not your jam, you just sit there and listen, all right? No problem. Um, so anyway, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, uh, I'm going to start reading there in verse 1. It says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their, hus- their wives live, when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. All right, so here is our main idea today. To the original audience, the New Testament instructions to wives were seen as affirming and empowering. We're going to get into that, all right? So to the original audience, the New Testament instructions to wives were seen as affirming and empowering, and while the cultural context has changed dramatically, Since then, the affirmation of a woman's worth in passages like this one remains. And that's what I hope to prove to you in our time together today. Today, we're actually going to identify eight ways that the worth of women is affirmed in these New Testament instructions to women. Before we get into those eight ways, we need to do just a teeny little history lesson. All right, so remember, before we can ask what does a passage mean, we have to ask what did the passage mean, right? We got to get back to the original. Now, the original audience that Peter's writing to here, and and also uh, same with the uh, churches that Paul wrote to, all right, they lived in a culture that was predominantly influenced by Greek ideas, all right? So Greek moral philosophers wrote a lot a lot, a lot, a lot about proper relationships within a household. So wives to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters. And while these different philosophers had different things to say about these relationships, they all believed that order within the household was the foundation, the absolute essential foundation of a strong, prosperous society. So in Greco-Roman culture these household codes were a big deal. 
and there was no way any religion or philosophy like Christianity entering into that context could ignore them. And so it should not surprise us that when both of the great apostles, Peter and Paul, write to destinations holding Greco, a Greco-Roman worldview, they give their own version of these household codes. But it's one that reflects not Greek philosophy, but the gospel and kingdom priorities. So if you ever wondered why the epistles harp on headship and submission so much, this is why. The culture of that day was very preoccupied with these things. So to remain silent on these matters would actually have done great harm to the mission of the church because it would have made them very suspect to the outside world. So as we go along, I'm going to be highlighting some of the common beliefs about men and women in that culture and how the Christian household codes were distinctly different. And just a side note, the reason why we don't write these instructions off as only a reaction to the culture of that day is because Paul roots headship and submission in the marriage in the theology of Genesis 2. All right, so um, there are people that try to argue, well, we can throw these household codes out because it's just a Greco-Roman thing. Not so uh, because Paul takes it all the way back to Genesis. All right? All right, well, let's get into these eight, eight ways that the worth of women is affirmed here. Number one, the worth of women is affirmed by the direct address to wives. Now, this is something you and I would totally skip over. All right, we would just take it for granted. But the, the passage, verse one, is speaking to wives in the same way. Wives, submit yourselves. We also see direct address to wives in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And the reason why this is significant is because a direct address to women is basically non-existent in Greek philosophy. So Greek philosophers wrote a lot about wives and surely expected wives to heed their wisdom, but they did not write to wives. In fact, it was not widely assumed in that culture that wives had a moral responsibility for their own behavior. It was proper to direct all instruction through the man who had both the capability and the authority to reason fully. Now, in social science, there's a term called agency. And this is defined as the capacity of individuals to act independently and to make their own free choices. All right, agency is an incredibly important aspect of human dignity, and it's one of the very first things to go in situations of abuse and oppression. And in a culture where agency was for men only, the Bible swings the door wide open for women as well. Both slaves and wives are given a level of moral responsibility that was unprecedented in Greek thought. All right, so reason number one, the worth of women is affirmed by the direct address to wives. Number two, the worth of women is affirmed by the limitations of submission. The limitations of submission. All right, so again, looking at verse one, the command is be submissive to your own husbands. We see the exact same thing in Ephesians 5, 
and in Colossians 3. And you can search and search, but nowhere in Scripture are all women commanded to take, an apost- take a posture of position, a, a posture, sorry, posture of submission to all men. So I am not commanded to submit to anyone else's husband, only mine. In your homework, you were asked to look up all the places where women, are, women specifically are commanded to submit and specify the one relationship in view. And hopefully you picked up on the fact that it's marriage. That's the one sphere, the one relationship where women submitting to men uh, is, is, is in view. And I had you do this because uh, a very prevalent in complementarian circles, more strict complementarian circles, is the idea that womanhood is submission. That you and I are feminine to the extent that we look for ways to submit ourselves to male authority in every sphere of our lives. And that line of thinking, while well-meaning, actually resembles Greek philosophy way more than it resembles what we actually find about women throughout the biblical narrative. Submission is commanded. And there's an application of submission that is gender-specific, just for us girls. But that application is solely within the context of marriage with your own husband. Outside of marriage, with men who are not our husbands, we apply all the one another's of scripture. Love, serve, honor, forgive, encourage, bless, and they are to do the same for us. That's not gender roles, that's being like Jesus, which is the priority for all of us, all right? So the limitations of submission speak to the worth of women as well. Number three, the worth of women is affirmed by the assumption that wives would convert to Christianity even if their husbands did not. Again, in our culture, in our mindset, we, we don't even think about this. We read right past this. This is what makes the First Peter passage so unique. He is not presenting us with an ideal Christian marriage like what we see in Ephesians 5. He is writing to wives whose husbands are not believers. That's what he means by disobedient to the word. Um, Peter, that's pa- Peter's favorite expression to describe an unbeliever. Now, we wouldn't, again, think twice about a woman converting to Christianity without her husband doing so as well. If a woman comes to you and says she wants a relationship with Jesus, you are not going to say, well, let's go ask your husband if it's okay. No. You're going to be like, yeah, let's do it, right? For the original audience, a wife making this kind of decision independently of her husband would have been pretty shocking. So there was a cultural expectation that the wife must worship her husband's god or gods. And here's a quote from ancient Greek philosopher Plutarch. A wife ought not make friends of her own, but enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions, end quote. 
Now, if this represents the view of first century Greco-Roman society, then a woman who becomes a Christian independently of her husband would appear rebellious for worshiping Christ and for making friends in the Christian community. She's putting herself at risk. But notice the command in this text is not to hide her faith or to wait to follow Jesus until her husband comes around. Again, it is assumed that she has agency, that she is willing to make her own decisions to follow Christ instead of hiding her faith. And she's exhorted to demonstrate her faith to her unbelieving husband through pure and reverent actions that will no doubt speak way louder than words. So in light of the cultural norms of the day, This is incredibly dignifying to women and absolutely fits with what we learn about women in Genesis 1 and 2. Number four, the worth of women is affirmed by the motive for submission. All right, so our passage here begins with the words, in the same way. And this points us back to what comes before it. And what we realize is that what we have here about wives and husbands in chapter 3 is actually part of a wider section on the topic of submission. And take a look at how the entire section is introduced. I want you to go back to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. All right, so Peter writes this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God in the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or the governors as those set out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. So what we see here first is that on a macro level, submission applies to everyone. And we talked about this in our very first um, session together. These rigid categories that like submission is feminine and leadership is masculine, that's, that's not really a biblical uh, representation. That submission is for everyone. And we, we see that here. And what is the point of submission? Well, it's God's glory. It's God's glory. That's what Peter is emphasizing here. We do it for the Lord's sake. And this is also clear in Ephesians. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The verse just before it, uh, which encompasses both men and women, says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, in the Greco-Roman mindset, the motive for submission was the good of society. And wives were given the submissive role because their husbands were deemed superior to them in a variety of ways, including intellect. But when God delivers his command for wives to submit, it has nothing to do with a deficiency, as though they are unfit to lead, It is fundamentally rooted in their relationship with him. 
There is a distinctly vertical dimension to it, which places another, uh, two more important limitations on submission. So we've already covered one. You submit to your own husband. Here's two more. First, submission is voluntary. It's voluntary. A husband is operating well outside the biblical model if he is demanding that his wife submit. Because submission is something she chooses to do out of reverence for Christ. The second limitation, if there's ever conflict between a wife's submission to her husband and a wife's submission to Christ, like if he's ever pressuring her to do something that violates God's law or her conscience as it relates to God's law, she gets to choose submission to Christ. Her primary allegiance is to Jesus because Jesus is who submission is all about in the first place. It's not about her husband. He's not the point. He gets to benefit. But Jesus is the point. These are empowering limitations on the command for wives to submit that would have been absolutely revolutionary to the original audience because they actually give women a choice. Number five, the worth of women is affirmed by the distinctly Christian definition of submission. Now, submission, if you look it up, whether you're looking up in a regular English dictionary, you try to look it up in a Greek lexicon, Bible dictionary kind of thing, it means exactly what you think it means. It's ordering yourself under the authority of another, deferring to them, obeying them, trying to find y'all a more, you know, cutesy, comfortable definition than that. That's the definition, all right? Now, in my experience... Discussions about submission in marriage are very application-heavy. So the conversation usually jumps straight to what submission looks like practically. And here's a list of some of the applications that I have read or heard over the years. Do not write these down. Not work worth the ink or the energy. Fold the clothes the way your husband likes them folded. Make sure you have the house tidied up and dinner ready when he gets home. Also make sure it is seasoned to his liking and made up of his favorite foods. If he prefers you with makeup, always put on makeup. Don't expect him to include you in big decisions. A wife shouldn't be the primary breadwinner. A wife shouldn't work outside the home. A wife shouldn't lead in family devotions. A wife shouldn't manage the family budget. And a wife shouldn't share opinions unless she's asked to. Don't ask your husband to help with household tasks. And my personal favorite, never deny your husband sex. In fact, if he is addicted to porn or having an affair, it's probably because you didn't submit hard enough in that particular area. I have read or heard all of these things from so-called Christian resources. And here's the thing, ladies. None of this stuff is in the Bible. None of it. We are given the command to submit to our husbands with virtually zero instructions 
on how to practically live that out, which in my opinion is very intentional and God's grace to us. Because what it means is that every husband and wife gets to discern before the Lord prayerfully how these commands are to be uniquely lived out in their marriage. If you are intently searching the New Testament for a definition of submission, if you are trying to uncover what it looks like, you are not going to find a marriage manual full of how-tos. You are not going to find a list. Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find Jesus. You're going to find Jesus. He is what submission looks like. I want you to see, I think one of the best passages where this is so clear is Philippians chapter 2. So again, you can turn there with me or you can just sit back and listen to me read this passage. Philippians 2, uh, I'm going to start in verse 5. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now first, it's very important to understand the way that passage starts out that Jesus is ontologically equal with the Father, meaning they share the same divine nature. Jesus is fully God. Jesus did not have to do what he did. That's why the humility of Christ is so stunning and mind-blowing. He willingly chose to take on a human nature. And in doing so, he chose a submissive role in the redemption of mankind. And all throughout the Gospels, we see him as the incarnate Son of God, submitting to the will of his Father all the way to the cross. And what is the ultimate result of Christ's willing submission in the economy or the function of redemption? It's the exaltact point of our submission as well. These God-ordained roles point to something way bigger than us in our marriages. They display the glory and fullness of Christ and the beauty of his gospel. A Christian definition of submission is not focused on a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about how you fold his socks. Its focus is entirely on the person and work of Jesus. And how we get to display that in our marriage relationships. 
So when I'm trying to discern what submission looks like for me and my marriage, the biggest question I'm seeking to answer is how can I best reflect the meekness and humility of Jesus to my husband in this situation? How can I Philippians 2 this thing? Right? How can I Philippians 2 this thing? And maybe for you, that does mean folding the socks in a certain way. Because you're all control freak, they should be folded this way. And he's like, no, my mama folded them that way. And you know what? You know what? Maybe Philippians 2, that laundry, is to fold the socks the way he likes them. Is it really a big deal? I don't know what it means for you. I don't know. I don't have to know what it means for you. It ain't none of my business because that's between you and your husband and the Lord. And I think that submission would look and feel a lot less cringy if we would stop making ridiculous lists and start pointing people to Jesus. We get to play the Jesus role in our marriage. We get to play the Jesus role in our marriage. And I love what Kathy Keller says about this. She says, if submission did not damage or hinder the dignity and equality of the second member of the Trinity, then it's not going to hurt me. I think that's a good word. That's a good word. I've gone back to that so many times. All right, we've got to move on. Number six. The worth of women is affirmed by the distinctly Christian definition of male headship. All right, so we have a distinctly Christian definition of submission, and we have a distinctly Christian definition of male headship. Now, Peter does not specifically mention the headship of the husband. He doesn't use that word, but it's implied in uh, the instructions of verse 7. So 1 Peter 3, verse 7, let me read it again. It says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. All right, let's tackle this weaker partner or weaker vessel, your passage might say. Uh, Let's tackle that reference. This is speaking of physical, not emotional or spiritual weakness, right? So it is common knowledge that on average, a woman's body is weaker than a man's. All right, so I work out way more than my husband, Greg. I lift weights more often. I run a lot further. I'm the one who's done the Tough mutters, and he's the guy on the side taking the pictures, all right? But that man could take me down if he wanted to. He's strong without even trying to be strong. It's a biological reality. And maybe you've been taught... A lot of women have been taught this, that your emotional sensitivity as a woman is a weakness. And so you've read that into this verse. I think a very strong argument can be made that our emotional capacity is actually tremendous strength. And like one of the reasons why it was not good for a man to be alone. And if you think men are the pinnacle of emotional strength, you have obviously never been around when their team loses, right? Like babies crying, like it's a game. (laughs) 
going back to Genesis 1 and 2, physical weakness is inherent in our biology, and it's something that God deems good. It is something also that after the fall is often exploited by men to get what they want. We saw this in the story of Amnon and Tamar, right? And here God is saying, no, guys, you can't do that. Because in God's kingdom, there is always, always, without exception, a burden on the strong to protect the weak. Always. Now, in addition to physical weakness, it's also likely that Peter is implying weakness of position as well, because the husband is the head. And of course, Paul lays this out with a lot more clarity. So I'm going to be turning to Ephesians chapter 5. Again, you can turn there with me or just listen. I'm going to pick up in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. But the passage doesn't stop there. Unless we think that headship is about having all the rights and the perks and the privileges, we just need to keep reading. Listen to this, verse 25. Listen to what, what husbands are called to do. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are the members of the body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Like I said, Paul roots all of this in Genesis chapter 2. It's a direct quote. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum it up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So we can know for sure this is not the kind of headship that was taught in the Greco-Roman world. This Christian model of male headship is radical, radical in that culture. And what we see here in Ephesians 5 is very consistent with the teachings of Christ on leadership and authority. There's one more passage that I want you to look at. Um, Definitely one worth turning to. It's in the book of Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. All right, so Jesus is speaking here. Um, So Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see what Jesus is doing here? 
He is completely redefining authority. He's taking all the ego and self-centeredness out of it. It's not about power or rights. It's about giving up your rights to serve those under you. And the night before his death, he showed his disciple what tr- disciples what true Christian leadership looks like by getting on his hands and knees and washing their dirty, stinky feet. So husbands get to play the Jesus role too, just in a little bit different way. We both do. It's it's crucial that we see that. We live out the submission of Christ. They live out the sacrificial service of Christ. And if we truly understood headship and authority as Jesus defines it, as the Bible defines it, we would love it. It wouldn't feel oppressive or demeaning or cringy at all. Because this kind of male leadership is actually the best thing that could ever happen to women. Where male leadership results in the marginalization, oppression, or abuse of women, we can know without hesitation that Christ has been cast aside and the biblical ideal traded for a satanic lie. And men who do that do not get heard by God. Did you see that in verse 7? You treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life, or I will not hear you. That's a harsh penalty for not honoring and valuing women. Number seven, the worth of women is affirmed by the emphasis on their inner person. Verse three of our passage, 1 Peter 3, verse three. Do not let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. So the first thing we need to establish is that this passage is not forbidding hairstyles or jewelry or dresses. It's commanding us not to make those things our priority or our hope. The passage is very clear about what should be the priority. It's the hidden person of the heart. It's the inner person. And this, of course, is referring to exactly what you think it is, our, our, our character, who we really are from the inside out. <laughs> but have you realized that our hidden person never stays hidden? <laughs> like, it ain't a secret, you guys, what your hidden person of your heart is. Just ask your family. Right? Because one of them is going to come along today and squeeze it right out of you. Right? So the hidden person in the heart doesn't stay hidden. I guarantee your family sees it all the time. (laughs) Which is why this is important, especially in the context of submission. So let's talk about that gentle and quiet spirit. I always feel for my, my friends, my sisters, who have a very loud personality. And like, that's just who they are. And this has rubbed a lot of us the wrong way because on the surface, it does look like there's a certain personality type that God wants us to have. And not everybody has that personality type. But that's not what this is. That's not what this is. Let's look at these words. The word gentle. 
It means meek, not insistent on one's own rights, not pushy or selfishly assertive, uh, not quarrelsome or controlling. That's a a gentle person. Uh, The word quiet, it's not a reference to volume or number of words. It's actually more internal than that. It means serene or tranquil, at peace. Luther defines it as a spirit that cannot be ruffled. I have a tendency to be easily ruffled, you guys. So that definition, Luther is really speaking to me there. A spirit that is not easily ruffled. So this is not speaking about a painful constraint of all words or opinions, but rather a beautiful serenity that makes you a joy to be around. You can have a very loud personality and still possess a gentle and quiet spirit. And any of you who know someone like that, they're like the best people to have around because they're so fun, but they're also so Christ-like. You're just like, oh, come hang with me all the time, right? Especially someone like me who's not naturally super fun. I'm kind of boring, you know? I need these people in my life. I want loud people around me. Peter says that this hidden person is this gentle and quiet spirit. It's imperishable. And Peter loves this word. He loves to talk about what's, what's imperishable, what's going to last forever. And what a, what a huge contrast with external adornment, which no matter how much money we fork over to Sephora or the dermatologist or the plastic surgeon, it will eventually fade. You ask a couple who's been married 50, 60 years, like what kept them together? He's not going to point to her body, her rock-hard abs, her D-cut breasts. Now, she may have had all of that stuff at one time, and he probably enjoyed it. But that's not what makes a marriage work. And it's most certainly not what shouts the gospel to an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving world. And the message of this text is so beautiful. The message is, be a person, not a body. Because the person doesn't fade. In fact, the person can be way more beautiful at 75 than she could ever dream of at 25. And this is so dignifying for those of us living in a culture obsessed with physical appearance. God says, you are not a body, you are a person. (laughs) Well, not only is a gentle and quiet spirit imperishable, it is precious in God's sight. It's worth much to him. And I don't know about you, but for me, that settles it right there. Like if it's precious to God, I want it to be precious to me. Here's the problem I'm constantly struggling with though. It's not precious to me naturally. Like how I look in skinny jeans is precious to me, right? How wrinkle-free my skin stays is precious to me. How I look on Instagram is precious to me. (laughs) For this hidden person of the heart to be precious to me, I need these words from this passage to renew my mind every day. I need God's spirit to transform my desires every day And I need him to help me love what he loves and value what he values. So let's seek that. Let's ask for that. And again, what a relief in a world obsessed with appearance whose standard I can only meet by surgically altering my body. (laughs) 
God says that doesn't matter. And he invites us to redefine beauty and invest our time and energy into something that will never, ever fade. That's the coolest thing. I love it. Number eight. The worth of women is affirmed by the high bar set for husbands in relation to their wives. Now, we already saw this in Ephesians 5. I want to draw your attention to the phrase, showing them honor in 1 Peter 3, 7. This word honor means value, respect, status. And the reason for showing honor is very clear. Because women are fellow heirs of the grace of life. That's why in Galatians 3, 26, um, Paul says you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. And a lot of times we as women can get all bent out of shape. Oh, what happened? I don't know. Anyway, I think we're okay. I think we're good. Um, Why didn't he say daughters too? Well, because in that culture, daughters had no rights. It was like not, it would not have been good if he was like, you are all daughters in Christ. I mean, nothing, (laughs) right? No, we are all male and female, sons of God through faith in Christ. And that is why he says there's neither slave nor free, you know, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus because we all are heirs. We're all heirs, fellow heirs of the grace of life. Now, I know that not all of you have a husband who shows you this honor. And that's exactly why I chose this passage. Because Peter is not writing to women in an ideal Ephesians 5 marriage. These are women whose lives had been radically disrupted by faith in Christ, and they are having to navigate the implications of that, which would have been incredibly challenging at home. And to these wives, Peter says, play the Jesus role. I want to be very clear. If there's abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, playing the Jesus role means holding your husband accountable for his actions. He's not destroying, just destroying you and your family. He's destroying himself. And there's nothing virtuous or God-honoring about submitting to abuse of any kind. It is not your fault. God is the defender of the oppressed. He sees you. He weeps with you. Let his people help you. But most marriages aren't abusive. They're just really, really hard. And I think maybe that's why Peter points us to Sarah. You know, I think of husbands that honored their wives. Abraham does not even make the list. Not on the list. Like, sorry, buddy. You do not qualify. He actually risked her life to protect his own, not once, but twice in the biblical narrative. You know, we have this idea that Abraham was a great man of faith. Well, he became a man of faith. But it took a really, really long time. And Sarah had to endure the process. And how did she do it? How did she remain faithful, a faithful wife to a man who was just so often just clueless about the will and ways of God? Well, I think verse 5 of our passage gives us a clue into that. It says, For in the past the holy women who put their hope in God also adorn themselves in this way. How'd Sarah do it? Sarah put her hope in 
God, not in her husband, not in her marriage, and not in herself. And I love the bravery depicted here. Did you notice that? Like when we think of bravery or courage or fearlessness, we tend to think of strong men. Like David slaying the giant, you know? But Peter points us to strong women, to strong women of faith, and he highlights how they did what was right without being frightened by any fear. These holy women of old were azers, those strong helpers, fearlessly coming alongside their husbands in the fulfillment of God's mission. And we are called to follow in their steps. All right, well, our time is pretty much out. I want to close by addressing something that is so heavy on my heart. You guys got a little bit of it a few weeks ago, but it's still, it's still there. And, and that's the, the, the rampant misuse of passages like this one in the church. When you have a passage that specifically gives women the label of weaker vessel and commands them to submit to unbelieving husbands in the context of suffering for the sake of the gospel, you've got yourself a recipe for misogyny. (laughs) The abuses of this passage and passages like this one are widespread and devastating. And any time you want to rant about it, you can call me and I will be happy to participate because I find this incredibly disturbing. And here's what I want to say about abuses of passages like this one. First, we need to do the hard and holy work of getting rid of the dirty, polluted, disgusting, despicable bathwater. Let's actively defend the inherent dignity and worth of women as it is taught throughout the storyline of the Bible. Let's teach our sons and daughters that women are equally valuable and equally essential to God's work in the world. Let's dispel the lies that women are more gullible or less capable of communicating the truth of God's word. Let's vehemently condemn those who demean and abuse women and let's advocate for their victims even if we are the only one person in the world who is advocating for the victim. Be the one. And as the Spirit leads, let's graciously expose any male chauvinism or misogyny in our churches. Let's swing wide the doors of ministry to both genders. Let's speak out against the global crisis women are facing. Do you realize that in most parts of the world, this topic, it's not about who gets to preach on Sunday morning? Like right now, women are dying because the truth of God about women is not known or not obeyed. Sex trafficking, genital mutilation, female genocide, honor killings, rampant domestic abuse, the absence of basic human rights all over the world. 
So let's get angry and, and let's get active because these things break the heart of God. But as we work hard to throw out the bathwater, we need to work equally hard to keep the baby. God is good, which means that all of his commands are good. The ordering of men and women that he has established both in the home and the church are a reflection of his love, not just for you and for me, but for a lost and dying world that needs to see the gospel lived out in our families. And so let's not be women who merely tolerate God's commands. And I'm, I'm so guilty of this, you guys. I'll submit, I don't like it, but, Right? And let's pray for hearts that delight in God's laws. I want to be a wife who loves submission, who delights in getting to play the Jesus role as I follow and serve my husband. I want to celebrate full on, no holds barred, celebrate the men who God has called to lead this church because we've got some really good ones. I want to be a sister who cheers them on and supports them in their work, not one who envies their role. And so let's roll up our sleeves and get rid of that bathwater. But let's also ready ourselves to fully embrace the baby. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just... Uh, I have been wowed like a bajillion times this week by your word, by your intention for marriage. And Lord, oh my goodness, forgive us. So many of our Christian marriage conferences, Christian marriage resources, we have this vision of marriage that is so teeny tiny and almost ridiculous. When you put it side by side to the, the purpose and the vision and the design for marriage that we see in your word. So, Lord, there's women in this room that need to go home and fold the socks a certain way. I pray that you would give them a heart of obedience to do that. <laughs> but if there's a woman in this room who's been taught that that's what submission is, God, would you just broaden our perspective that we would Philippians 2 our whole life, especially our relationship to our husbands. How can we Philippians 2 our marriages this week? Lay that on our hearts. Make that clear and grant us the ability through the power of your spirit to live it out. God, now that we know, we, we're almost done with this study and we can't unknow what we know. We can't unsee what we've seen. And who much is given, much is required. And for us to walk out of this place and not become advocates for women, would be a tragedy and a complete denial of what you have shown us in these weeks. And so, Father, give us eyes to see the hurting, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the abused. And can we fix all of that? No, but we can listen and we can believe And that can be absolutely life-changing to a victim. So help us be women like that. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you for your good commands. We thank you that we can trust they're good, even if, oh, even if it doesn't feel good. We know they're good because you love us and you are good. And so help us embrace these and live them out. And it's the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Mm.